Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. As I mentioned in the last episode, today we are diving into Benedict the Sixteenth. The 16th, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week. And I'm doing that with Kevin, who's on the other line. He is sporting a beanie and eating, are those fresh Colorado oranges? Kevin, you're going full hipster on me? No, they're, they're not that fresh. They're like <laughs> two weeks old at least. Oh, man. <laughs> That's why I, I'm just crushing oranges because I got I to gotta do an orange refresh. King Super's finest, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. Cuties. Well, Kevin, I am sorry I had to push back our recording time. I just got back from a, an RCIA right of election, which was pretty cool. It was for our entire diocese here, happened to be at our local church and I'm sponsoring a candidate for reception into the church. So uh, I was going to this program and, or I should say this liturgy, it was not a mass, but it was a liturgy. So there was a liturgy of the word, there was a homily by the bishop. And then there was a moment where all of the catechumens, that is the unbaptized who are going to be baptized at the Easter vigil, had their names called, um, had their names enrolled basically in their parish registry. And the bishop then confirmed their election as part of the elect and invited them to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. And then there was the spot for the candidates as well. The candidates, of course, being those who are already baptized, but will be received into full communion uh, in the church. So it was a really cool thing to see. I mean, anytime the bishop is there, that's neat because that doesn't happen every day unless you attend a cathedral. Uh, But even then, I think you'll see the bishop here and there because the bishop travels around the diocese to all the various parishes. So. Yeah, I remember uh, there was one day, you know, up in Denver where I, I was just lucky and I, and I was off of work. So I, I was able to go to daily mass at a parish uh, near to where I live. And it's not even my normal parish, but it's just a parish I was close by and they offer daily mass. And, uh, you know, I walk in and I sit down and there's the customary 15 or so people there for daily mass. And the assistant bishop walks in. And I'd never seen the assistant bishop before. I wasn't even sure that it was the assistant bishop, but what uh, tipped me off was he was wearing the zucchetta. So the little, you know, not the big miter, but the zucchetta, the little like round yarmulke type hat. Right. I was like, "Mm, that's different. That's also not the, uh, that's also not the the parish priest at all. And he's also wearing a pectoral cross. I was like, ah, okay, well, we're doing it. And so it was, was, yeah, it's like you said, it's really cool to see uh, a bishop just out in the wild. (laughs) Let's talk about that real quick. So we were at mass the other day and there was a priest celebrating who had a black zucchetta. And we were like, who is this? We don't recognize this. We talked to him later. He was the a Monsignor in our diocese. <laughs> and so correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is the black zucchetta is a Monsignor. The purple zucchetta is a bishop. The red is a cardinal and obviously the white is a pope. Is that Does that accord with your understanding of the sort of the colors of the zucchetta and what they signify? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Well, we are going to try to keep this to 30 minutes, Kevin. So I We're think we should just it. dive right in and talk yeah, about let's, talk about let's this, uh, this amazing book. I mean, I've talked at length on this podcast before about how wonderful this trilogy is, and I'm really excited to dive into this uh, here. We're going go to go into the first four chapters, the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus's eschatological discourse, the washing of the feet, and the high priestly prayer. But before we do that, maybe some introductory thoughts here, Kevin. I'm going to say a few 
give a few thoughts and then feel free to tack on to what I have here. This is part two of a three-part trilogy. Uh, chronologically, it was written second of the three, but it also um, it also is not the beginning uh, as far as what it described in Jesus' life. In fact, it describes the end of Jesus' life and his his bodily resurrection. So second chronologically as far as when it's written, third chronologically as far as the the order that it that it has, but uh, has but Benedict is building on an exegetical framework that he started in the first book, and what I mean by that is he is approaching the text in what he thinks is a necessary way, uh, and in in what he describes as a way that's called for specifically in the Second Vatican Council's um, Dei Verbum on the Word of God. So he writes that we need this faith hermeneutic to combine with a historical hermeneutic in order to form a methodological whole. So if, if we're going to really dig into the scriptural texts and understand what God is saying to us through them, because they are indeed the word of God, we need to not just say, okay, let's, let's use sort of like modern critical exegesis and evaluate this purely as a product of its time. But rather we need to approach this with an, with a hermeneutic that starts at a point of faith starts at a point of this is the word of God. What does God have to say to us? And then we can take into account some of the historical considerations and, and, and uh, what the, what the Jews of the time in this case would have been understanding these words to mean, et cetera. So I think that's a really important thing. And, and throughout the book, at least the part that we've read so far, Kevin, Benedict takes some of these modern exegetes to task and says like, they are missing the point entirely, right? They're, they're interpreting this as a 20th century scripture scholar and not as one, a person of faith who's, who's looking at this as a, as the divine word of God, but two, maybe more importantly, as, as someone, um, in this time of this era of this sort of cultural milieu would have, would have interpreted it. So I think that's really important. I have a quote from him here from the introduction to the book in which Benedict says, I have attempted to develop a way of observing and listening to the Jesus of the Gospels that can indeed lead to personal encounter, and that through collective listening with Jesus' disciples across the ages can indeed attain sure knowledge of the real historical figure of Jesus. And I think that's a really important thing to say before we start this book study, because throughout Benedict's trilogy, he weaves in this idea, this need, this imperative, this desire of God for real relationship with humanity. Throughout the book, he emphasizes how Jesus's mission is to reconcile humanity to himself, to open up this space for love between God and man, to open up the capacity for relationship with God between God and man. And that's a fundamentally new idea that Jesus Christ comes. He transforms the Jewish understanding and relationship with God to something brand new. Brand new, not in the sense that it, it obviates or destroys the old, but brand new in the sense that it elevates the old. Uh, it creates the new covenant. And I think that's really important. Do you have anything to add, Kevin, before we before we dive in? You know, I I, I don't. I think that's, that's really well said. And for me to try to add would merely be to subtract. So uh, <laughs> it's a great study. It's a great book for Lent. And I'm excited to, to just press forward on it with you. Sounds great. Well, uh, you said before that we were in danger. You looked up, looked at the notes that we had compiled here and you said we're in danger of busting our 30 minute self-imposed time <laughs> limit. So we're going to dive in. Uh, I think the best thing we can do, Kevin, is maybe take one or two central themes from each chapter. Just discuss that and, and go that way. And then we'll maybe have some wrapping or concluding thoughts at the end. So let's start with chapter one, the entrance into Jerusalem. And I'll start with a question for you, Kevin. What was your favorite part of this chapter? Wow, there's... You know, there's so much here. I think for me, probably my favorite part of this is there's a fairly short section. It might be three pages uh, where Benedict is talking about how 
Jesus's actual entrance into the city, the method of transportation, which he has selected a donkey, uh, which he has actually requisitioned um, from, you know, a local in the area, but how this very simple, humble entry into Jerusalem is actually a manifestation and kind of the fulfillment of Christ's Davidic Davidic kingship. So he talks about a couple of the themes here. Uh, The first, which I've kind of already mentioned about how Jesus is actually, by taking this donkey, invoking or really invoking his right as a king to requisition a form of transportation. And it's interesting because it's not, you know, the most lavish form of transportation, but simply to take it uh, for himself for his use was a, a kingly right. And, you know, I think this goes back to this historical and faith hermeneutic, which you uh, very aptly outlined just a moment ago, where reading this in this historical context starts to really bring out how this uh, simple entry really is a manifestation because Benedict just, just does such a wonderful job of talking about some of the Old Testament themes and uh, how this carries on the Old Testament uh, prophecies and and the kings of the Old Testament, and then you know moving on from there, I thought you know something that I, I think Benedict just does so incredibly well, better than almost anyone I think is he picks up on these really small details and and fleshes them out and understands them so well. And the one that really got me is where uh, he's talking about the manner in which the the apostles placed Jesus upon the donkey. And it says they like remove their garments and actually lay them on top of the donkey for, for Jesus to sit upon. And about how that, again, was another kind of Jewish Davidic custom. Um, and it was the manner of his apostles uh, really representing kind of their humility before him and and providing some sort of comfort for him as he rode on this donkey and all of these themes coming together and how the people you know this is Palm Sunday and the people welcome Christ into the city and how this really truly is well well the rest of Christ's life and his mission up to now is really leading up to this moment where he enters into the city and you know the final days of his life and the final fulfillment of his kingship is now truly coming through. And I I thought just those two or three pages is just, just incredible how uh, Benedict is able to present all of those themes right up front. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was describing to me that their mother, who is not ethnically Jewish, is attending or, or has previously attended a Messianic Jewish community. Mm -hmm. That is a, a, a Jewish community that uh, still is sort of Jewish in identity and embraces many of the Jewish practices, um, but recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. And they were describing this to me as a reason why she isn't Catholic. And I am going to recommend to them that they read this trilogy mm-hmm. because Benedict so effectively ties in the Old Testament with the new, the old covenant to the new. Uh, Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. And, and it's so effective. And, and and we'll talk, I think, a little bit more when we get into the temple discourse in the next chapter. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, just understanding how all of these, um, these uh, sort of uh, foreshadowings or prototypes of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament mm-hmm. bear witness to his his kingship, uh, his messiahship, his salvific role, uh, his, his high priest of the new covenant role in the New Testament is super important. For me, one of the favorite 
parts of the chapter, one of my favorite parts of the chapter, similar to yours, was about Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem. Um, but but very specifically and very briefly in this chapter, um, Benedict's point about how when we sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in the liturgy of the Mass, yeah. we're doing exactly what these crowds were doing in Jerusalem as Jesus walked in. And I've thought about that at Mass since I read this part of the chapter. Uh, as I say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, etc., uh, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of that crowd in Jerusalem who's welcoming the king as he comes. And in the mass, it's so beautiful because Jesus is coming into our midst. Of course, that's before the elements are consecrated. But but in that sense, we are welcoming, we're creating a space for Jesus to come into our midst truly as he is really present in the blessed Eucharist. So so right. I thought that we're, was really we're neat. basically beckoning him to, to come in. And it's, I think it's beautiful too because it's the Sanctus, right? Right before everyone um gets down upon their knees for the the introduction of the Eucharistic, the continuation of the Eucharistic prayer is absolutely incredible. Yeah, completely agree. I had one question for you on this chapter, just briefly before we go on to chapter two. Benedict spent a lot of time talking about the temple cleansing, and he talks about these three different interpretations that various exegetes over time have have believed about this. The first is that this is a cleansing of the temple, basically attacking the people in the temple, the money changers, the tradesmen, etc., who are misusing the temple. So it's defense of the proper use of the temple. The second interpretation is that this is Jesus as a political revolutionary, right? Um, sort of up upending the status quo and and trying to deliver political salvation to the Hebrews of the time. And then the third interpretation, which is the one that Benedict settles on, and one that, that I think is borne out by the text, as Benedict says, but one that I hadn't really thought about much before. I was really sort of thinking in the in the first frame of mind, the defending the, t- the temple from misuse. But the third interpretation is that this is Jesus actually opening up a space for common worship. Did that interpretation ring true for you, Kevin? You know, it did. And I, you know, I'm kind of with you where before reading this section, uh, I'd kind of oftentimes, I wouldn't say sided with, but kind of sympathized with the argument that it was an attack on the temple's misuse. The, uh, the, the cleansing as an act of political revolution has never really uh, come through with me. Um, and the, I think my reason for that is because if you're going to have that kind of political revolutionary interpretation it really requires you to place so much emphasis on Jesus' mission as primarily primarily a political one, which in that case, it would mean that the chief concern of Christ's mission would be the improvement of man's material condition because politics, you know, ultimately is, you know, it's the most human of, of enterprises and it ideally is about justice and about improving man's condition on earth. But if if you take that interpretation to me, it, it seems you have to kind of reject the idea or the the reality of Christ's divinity because Christ himself comes and throughout his mission, uh, it talks about how his mission is one about saving the world and bringing people into the fullness of heaven. It's not about, you know, making our lives easier on earth. So I think that kind of political revolutionary interpretation is just right out for me. And then I think what is most convincing about Benedict's interpretation about this being an opening up of a space is he points out that that is the interpretation that Christ gives to his apostles himself. So once again, it's like Benedict is pointing out that, well, we sit here and try to make our our own interpretations or see this as a historical or political or even just a mere a kind of simply a faith hermeneutic. And in, in his words, if you combine the two and ultimately if you, accept the justification that Christ himself gives, then his interpretation of it being an opening up of a space is the, it seems to me, it's the only one that you can really, really accept. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, it's also worth mentioning that the first and third are not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think he can be defending the temple for misuse while opening up a space for common worship. But the goal is not, I think the, the, the idea is the goal of Jesus is not negative in the sense he's not just trying to stop people from misusing something, but he's trying to promote the right use of the temple, right? And that's the opening up of the space for common worship. So I thought that was pretty compelling. Should we go into chapter two, Kevin? Let's do it. We're moving. We're moving at light speed for us. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. So uh, I hope you'll permit me a short monologue here, though. This chapter is my favorite of the first four. Uh, I hopefully will not take too long talking about this, but I have a few notes, so much so, in fact, that you said uh, in the notes here on Google Drive, I think this is enough material to keep us busy for chapter two. <laughs> so so we'll see if that's the case. But chapter two is really about the the eschatological discourse of Jesus, and very specifically, a lot of that discourse talks about the temple. And so Benedict spends a lot of time in this chapter talking about the temple. And I want to dive into a little bit, of, a little bit of that here, because it's very important to understand the role of the temple in the life of the biblical times Jew. So put yourselves in the shoe in the shoes of a Jewish person around that time. The temple is the center of life for the religiously observant Jew. And as we just talked about Jesus driving out the money changers and the exchangers and all of this, it was also the center of life for, for many people who weren't even religiously observant, right? You'd go there to buy and sell things. Um, it was a marketplace in the, in the, what we call the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court of the temple. Uh, but rightly so it is the center of life for the religiously observant Jew because it's in the sanctuary of the temple that God dwells, right? Just as God is truly present in our Eucharist, uh, before Jesus died and rose again, God was truly present in the temple itself, in, in, the, in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there it's the, uh, I think the, the cloud is called the Shekinah, but God's presence uh, hovers over the, the Ark, and that symbolizes God's uh, God's reality, God being truly present there. The high priest would offer sacrifices to God there, most especially on the Day of Atonement, but also throughout the year. And the various men and women of Jerusalem go into the temple or at the very least to the court of women um, to offer sacrifices and to pray. So if you can imagine this gigantic temple, it's one of the most impressive buildings of the ancient world. I think it's, it's absolutely massive. I don't know, you know, how many football fields exactly it would, it would cover or anything like that. But if you look at diagrams of this, just, just go online and look at, you know, diagram of the Jewish temple, biblical times, and you'll see it. I mean, the outer court is, uh, the court of the Gentiles, and that's where you can go if you're not a Jewish person. If you are a Jewish person, you can go into the court of women. That would be for um, young boys who are not yet become men and for women. And then there's the court of Israel, which is for um, boys who have been deemed men, who have passed their Torah examinations as well, etc. And then you have the, the, um, the, the interior of the temple itself. Um, so it's an absolutely massive building. And as I mentioned, it's the center of Israel. And because it's, it's the center of Israel, religiously and, and politically in, in many respects, um, it's also a huge symbol of the vitality of Israel and of God's blessing on Israel. So imagine that you're in the shoes of a Bible Times Jew. And then in AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Now, Benedict talks about this a little bit. He quotes a man, a scholar named Middlestadt, and he says, the end of the temple took place in three stages. First, the suspension of the regular sacrifice. So the sacrifice stops. That's really big, right? Because there's nothing to, nothing to offer atonement anymore, by which the sanctuary was, was, was reduced to a mere fortress. Then it was set on fire again in three stages. And finally, the ruins were demolished after the fall of the city. So this would be absolutely crushing for a Jew in AD 70 to see, to witness the destruction of the temple. So much so that Benedict writes about how many of these Jews probably would have fled for the hills, uh, fulfilling biblical prophecy or following biblical uh, commandments in the Old Testament to, to flee uh, the destruction of the temple. So on pages 32 and 33, Benedict says that for Judaism, the end of the sacrifice, the destruction of the temple must have come as a tremendous shock. Temple and sacrifice lie at the very heart of the Torah. 
Now there was no longer any atonement in the world, no longer anything that could serve as a counterweight to his contamination by evil. What is more, God, who had set down his name in the temple and thus in a mysterious way dwelt within it, had now lost his dwelling place on earth. What had become of the covenant? So I think that's a really good way to capture sort of what a first century Jew would be thinking. But most significantly, um, Benedict says that long before its outward destruction, the era of the temple in salvation history had come to an end. And this, this is the insight of Christianity. This is the way that Jesus transforms the old covenant or abrogates the old covenant and ushers in the age of the new covenant as the great high priest. When you look through the New Testament, early Christian theology, especially in the Pauline epistles, you see this idea very clearly. Look, look in um, Romans when Paul says that Christ Jesus is the new expiation by his blood. And when he says that, the word expiation is Greek. Kevin's going to laugh at my pronunciation. Uh, Hilasterion? Close, yeah. Hilasterion. Okay, Okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) Which translates to the Hebrew kaporet. Kaporet? Kaporet? Uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T. Which described, that word describes the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. That same covering would be what would be sprinkled with blood. The blood of a, a sacrificed bull killed on the Day of Atonement by the great high priest. So the blood itself is, is what, what purifies. And when Paul, this now I'm going to quote from Benedict on pages 39 and 40, when Paul applies this Greek word hilasterion to Jesus, designating Jesus as the seal of the Ark of the Covenant and thus as the locus of the presence of the living God, where God actually dwells, the entire Old Testament theology of worship is raised to a completely new level. Jesus himself is the presence of the living God. This is so cool. And I was just like eating up all of this stuff in this chapter because related to what you were saying, Kevin, about the relation of the Old Testament to new, Old Covenant to new, this ties it all together, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And this feeds exactly into chapter four as well about Jesus as the new high priest. But this stuff, I think, is just so exciting to dig into and understand, to, to think about how the destruction of the, the temple, I, I don't want to say the destruction of the temple didn't matter. But the temple was no longer the locus of God's right, it relationship. Already been, it had already man. been torn down, right? It's, right, exactly. If we want to get, I mean, just really super literal with this. When you were while you were talking, I was looking in my lexicon to excite. You got me curious with this word hilasteron, and I looked it up, and it literally translates to the propitiatory, which is then I had to look up in an English dictionary because I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> but it literally translates to uh, one who gains favor. And when you think then about the purpose of a sacrifice in the temple was to gain favor with God, and now Christ has become this new propitiatory, the new gaining of favor, uh, it just it all comes through in, in why the, the temple sacrifice is no longer necessary because we have one who has come among us and has sacrificed himself in order to, for us both to purify us and to, to gain favor for us on behalf of us with God. And I love the gain favor verbiage as well, because this isn't just, this isn't just substitutionary atonement, right? This is, this is something more than that. This is Jesus again, not just opening up a space for common worship in the physical temple itself, but opening up a space for us to have a relationship with God. That's again the theme that that permeates Benedict's work. This is not this is not a mere academic exercise to study scripture. This is not uh, this is not a mere historical activity to examine what Jesus said and what he meant. This is actually something that relates directly to how we relate to God and how God desires to relate to us. Should we go to chapter three, Kevin? Let's do it. 
All right, so washing of the feet. This, I, I mean, this was, if I'm picking between the four, this is my least favorite chapter, but Ooh. there's a ton of good stuff in here. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I want to pitch it to you first. So what did you find great in this chapter? Well, yeah, I, I actually thought this might have been my favorite chapter or, or at least one of the top two for me. Uh, but just one small section again that I, I found absolutely beautiful was this section uh, about Christ's two, con- two separate conversations he has with Peter. And the first one, in very Petrine fashion, uh, is when, let me see if I can find the exact page, because I'm, but basically what's happening is, you know, the apostles are reclined at table with Jesus, and uh, Jesus gets up to wash their feet, and it's the moment when Peter says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And it's the whole idea that uh, that Peter is misunderstanding this relationship that Christ has with with him and with all of us, where Peter is so locked in his ways of understanding the master and servant relationship and sees himself as a servant that he's unable to fathom that under any circumstances that it would be acceptable for Christ to wash his feet. And then the conversation where between them where where Jesus says that, you know, this is necessary. I I have to do this in order for you to be cleansed. If I don't do this, then, you know, you will not be able to to be in heaven or you will not be able to to follow me on my path. So that's the first. And so it's like this lesson of humility and the true meaning of humility is, um, you know, very important. And then the second conversation uh, between Peter and Jesus where uh, they're actually then later uh, in the meal, I believe, when um, Peter, where, where, when Jesus tells his apostles that he's going to be leaving them, and Peter asks, well, where are you going? Um, and Christ's answer is, you know, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow, which is not, you know, really an answer to the question. It's just a, like, your time will come, be patient, you can't follow me right now, you'll follow me later. And Peter uh, in very Petrine fashion, again, it just has so much, he struggles because he's so fervent. He has such a desire to be with the Lord that, you know, he, he can't accept that answer on some level. And that's why, you know, when they're on the Mount of Olives, when the, the, um, the Praetorians come, Peter actually draws his sword and tries to defend Christ. And Benedict, again, just traces this through the scripture and shows how it's Peter's impatience and his you know, fervent desire, but misplaced to be uh, physically with Jesus actually draws him to the denial because his denial uh, in the garden of, or in the, in the um, courtyard, his denial of Christ is ultimately because he he doesn't want to be seen as one of Christ's followers so that he can be as close as possible to observe and hear what's happening. So it's his impatience uh, and his unwillingness to, to, be patient when Jesus asks him to be patient that drives him to this sin. And I just think these conversations are so incredible because Peter, I think a lot of times in the gospels comes across as kind of, I don't want to say simple, but maybe just, you know, very unilateral, very directional. He's kind of, he's set on a path. He's going to follow it through. He doesn't always see the symbolism immediately to see the symbolism in, in Jesus's words. And you know, I kind of, I love, I love it because he is, it's like Peter is us. <laughs> like sometimes it's hard to admit that, but the, the way Peter has these interactions, like Peter is us in the way we are, you know, I find it all the time where we get so impatient. We just want to, um, 
we want to do the right thing and it drives us sometimes to make errors because we kind of burn too fervently and then burn ourselves out or uh, we fail to understand the proper relationship because we want to be um, so subjected and, and pure servants and not understand sometimes that the true humility is an understanding that Christ came to serve us. And I just think those two conversations um, really, really illuminate a lot of that. I love that. That's all well said. I'll just, before we go into chapter four, I'll just add my favorite part of this chapter. And it's Benedict's criticism of modern exegesis that wants to say everything Jesus does is really about upending ritual requirements and transforming them into beautiful new moral norms. And you, you hear this a lot, even if you're not conscious of it, I think. And it's when people say like the essence of Christianity is the golden rule. Uh, okay, I mean, the golden rule is really important. It's a uh, it's a great uh, sort of moral consequence of the transforming truth of Christianity. But the essence of Christianity is about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, right? It's the essence of Christianity is not distilled into the golden rule. Um, and I, I think, you know, one example of this that I saw recently is Elizabeth Warren tweeted a verse from Matthew about, you know, as you do to the least of these, you do so to me. And I'm not commenting about all of Warren's policy platforms here. I mean, she's uh, she has an appallingly pro-choice position, which I think is reprehensible, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, we can we can save that for another day. But I think this is a common thing that we see in politicians, and I don't I don't mean to pick only on Warren here. I think anybody who anybody who pretends that they can quote a chapter of moral teaching from the New Testament and say like this is Christianity to me. I had a friend who who uh, also basically said to me, living as a Christian is all about the Beatitudes, all about the Sermon on the Mount. And that's really important, but it's not the essence of Christianity, right? I mean, I, th I think understanding what's going on here, understanding how Jesus saves us, understanding how Jesus comes to unite us to the Father, that is the essence of Christianity. And I really think that's that's what Benedict's saying here, and I, I appreciate that so much because it, it it sort of, it reminds me of what Robert Barron often calls beige Catholicism, right? Like this idea that, this idea that, Christianity is helpful because it helps us love each other more and it helps us live as more upright and responsible citizens. And it's nice that we can get together in churches and sing good songs. It's more than that, right? Christianity and our Catholic faith is about so much more than that. So when Benedict says that in place of ritual purity on, on page 59, what we have now is not merely morality, but the gift of encounter with God and Jesus Christ. That's a, that's what our faith is all about. It's not just moral teaching. And to make it simply that, it's to just cheapen the entire thing tremendously. But let's go on to chapter four, Kevin. Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, and there's a ton <laughs> here about Jesus' high priestly prayer. I, I encourage our listeners to go read all of John chapter 17. That is the high priestly prayer. It's a beautiful discourse from Jesus, who is the new high priest, and Benedict ties that into the discussion about the Day of Atonement when the high priest would offer sacrifices. Christ Jesus is our new high priest, offering um, his own sacrifice of himself. I mean, truly his own sacrifice. Um, and that own sacrifice sanctifies us, as he says in uh, John seventeen seventeen. Benedict has this beautiful reflection about a threefold sanctification, um, and he pulls out these these various themes. One is that sanctification, one is um, God's name, one is unity, and one is eternal life. And in this eternal life discussion, which he says, look, this eternal life is not just about not dying, right? We still have a natural death, but it's about more than that. It's about being united to the eternal God. 
And he actually draws a parallel between this idea and the work in Plato, some of Plato's concept of uh, eternal life. So, Kevin, as someone who's read much more Plato than I have, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, where does this occur in Plato's work? Or maybe more directly, does this parallel make sense? And what is Benedict getting at here when he talks about eternal life? Yeah, the the parallel definitely makes sense. And you can't you can't point to any one single place in Plato's work where this parallel comes out because it really is the theme or one of the underlying themes of all of his work, which is his concept of the forms, which if you haven't read much Plato or any Plato, that's perfectly fine. I mean, uh, but his idea, the concept of the forms is that there is this world outside of our own an immaterial world that is purely intellectual and that is the world of the forms and the forms are the reality that actually exists behind everything that we perceive they're purely interaction intellectual and the reality of something or you know how real it is is directly correlated to how much it participates in the form of the object that it is so a person a human being is as human and as much as it participates in the form of the human and the same thing like a a phone is as phone its phoneness is in direct correlation to uh its participation in the form of a phone and, and i assume that's a platonic that's a quote from one of his works where he talks about phoneness exactly yeah phones <laughs> he talks are, about how his yeah. iphone subscribes to the form of of a phone right i think that's yeah. uh I don't remember the work, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, this is the key part of this is that the forms are eternal. And what Plato means by etern eternality is they always are. They are never becoming or going away, going out of existence. They simply are. And it's very contrary to our human inclination to look at things in the material world, uh, which we, when we see something in the material world and we look at an object that is in the material world, we tend to look at it as being more real than an idea, uh, something that is maybe not fully manifest in the real, what we consider the real or material world. But Plato says, you know, actually these ideas are more real and of higher dignity than anything that exists in the material world because of their eternality things in the material world are always you know coming into being or decaying the forms are not so when our human intellect kind of grasps the truth of something like a mathematical concept a logical law a moral precept we as human beings are in that moment actually having an encounter with a form which means we are having an encounter with something that is eternal and this really kind of is the beauty of human re reason and the gift uh, that God has given us with our reason. It's the capacity for us to step outside of the material world that we can participate in uh, kind of regularly and touch and feel and sense. It's our opportunity to step outside of that and participate in something that is eternal. Now, if we take all of that and kind of move beyond Plato, the Christian sees God as the ultimate subject of human reason. He is the truly eternal, the only truly eternal being from which all of our material reality flows. And St. Augustine really picks this up. He was, a, I wouldn't say a student of Plato, but someone who read Plato very closely. And St. Augustine believed that Plato was the philosopher who came closest to Christianity without having any encounter with Christianity. And he states this very explicitly when he says that it's the love of God, therefore, you know, God as being the eternal truth. So love of the eternal truth as necessary condition for us as human beings to leave what he calls a city of man and enter the city of God, which would be that eternal life. Um, so these 
kind of themes that Benedict is bringing up are all culminating in this idea that it is us looking towards God as the eternal truth, uh, which provides us then the opportunity for eternal life where we no longer have to kind of glimpse the truth uh, through our material world, but actually through the beatific vision, uh, God willing, when, we, when we're all in heaven, we'll be able to actually have our full encounter with that eternal life and eternal truth. Well said. Thank you for that explanation of the platonic forms, Kevin. I think we're almost out of time. I do want to ask, first of all, if we've missed anything, and I have a few closing words on Benedict's discussion of unity from this chapter. But first of all, let's talk about what we've talked about so far. Anything we missed or need to go back to say something else about? I don't think so. I mean, there's plenty more that we could talk about, but uh, I think I think we've we've hit some really good themes, and hopefully, uh, for those who maybe were on the fence about reading this or engaging with this book, hopefully. Uh, we've kind of piqued some interests. Yeah, hopefully. So the final things I want to say is in this fourth chapter where Jesus talks about unity, not once, not twice, but thrice, including when he says, Father, may they all be one as you and I are one. This theme of unity comes through very, very strongly. And Kevin, you probably recall unity is one of the things that I started thinking about that, that by the grace of God led me to the Catholic Church. And I think it's something that every Christian should think about. Uh, not least because this is what Jesus prays for three times in the high priestly prayer. And in Benedict's discussion of unity, he basically posits three different ideas about what unity looks like in the church. The first idea is, uh, I guess what I would call the fundamentally cynical idea. And that's that unity is just impossible, right? And this would be something that uh, that probably modern liberal exegetes would say, because there is a denial of faith or the supernatural governing this thing that we call the church. And rather, it's a it's a uh, belief that the church is nothing more than a collection, a self-association of well-meaning individuals. So the reason that unity is impossible is because that our, our fundamental humanness makes it impossible, right? We will argue, argue, we will quarrel, and that will lead to schism. So that's the first, unity is impossible. The second is that unity is there, but it's invisible, Right, that that there is a mystical unity that connects all believers, even though they disagree on some very fundamental and major things. And then the third vision is that unity is there and it is visible. And Benedict talks about Boltman's Rudolf Boltman's discussion of this passage, and he says that Boltman says, "Look, the unity Jesus is talking about is not founded." I'm quoting now from Boltman. Not founded on natural or purely historical data, nor can it be manufactured by organization, institutions, or dogma. It is also true that the authentic unity of the community is invisible, because it is not a worldly phenomenon at all. So Boltman falls into the second category, that unity is real, but it's invisible. And Benedict says, okay, you know, I think he's right in insofar as unity clearly is supernatural. Unity is not a fundamentally human thing. We fracture and argue and, you know, we're, we're, fundamentally, we're fundamentally schismatic. So he's right that unity is supernatural where it does exist at all. Benedict says, inasmuch as the world is operative in the church, in Christianity, it leads to schisms, right? So clearly, if there is unity, it is only of God. But at the same time, Benedict says, quote, unity must be visible. It must be recognizable as something that does not exist elsewhere in the world, as something that is inexplicable on the basis of mankind's own efforts, and that therefore makes visible the workings of a higher power. The invisible unity of the community is not sufficient. So he's taking Boltman to task on this and saying, look, you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't say that unity is real 
and it's it's a, a wonderful gift of God, but also it's completely invisible and we have no idea that it's there. There has to be some visible sign of unity. Where do we find that? We find that in the Catholic Church. We find that in apostolic succession. We find that in the three marks that that Benedict talks about, apostolic succession, um, uh, sacred scripture, and sacred tradition, right? The three kind of pillars of, of the church is unity. And I think that's really important. I mean, I know many people who are Protestants um, who who take the second position of this sort of invisible unity. And, and ultimately, it's coherent and sort of self-collapsing because as Benedict says, we have to have some sort of visible reminder because that visible rem- reminder itself is a witness of the supernatural nature of the church and our God who is guiding it. So I really like that, and I thought that it was spot on, and I'm going to bookmark that section for, for future discussions with my Protestant friends. All right. <laughs> our uh, our next week, we're or not next week, probably in two weeks, because we're trying to do this kind of spread it out over uh, the course of one. So either in two or three weeks from now, we're going to tackle the next three chapters in this book. So that would be The Last Supper. I know there's going to be a ton to dig into there, Kevin. Uh, Gethsemane and Trial of Jesus. And then we'll save the crucifixion and burial and resurrection for um, the last session that we have on this. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me for another episode here. I'll talk to you next or next time. <laughs> Whenever we do Always the next discussion. The, <laughs> the Last Supper, Gethsemane, and the Trial of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Credo Catholic. If we miss anything and you want to let us know, email Zach, Z-A-C, at credocatholic.com or Kevin at credocatholic.com. Until next time. God bless you. Peace.